Soy. It's one of the most polarizing of foods. A casual search of the internet will uncover first one article lauding it for its health benefits, while the next article will class it as the food of the devil, with eaters of it condemned to a hell of hormone-related disease. To help you make sense of the conflicting messages about soy, I'll dig deeper into some of the key health areas linked to eating soy foods. And then I'll clarify just how much credence you should give to both the health claims and the health alarms made about it. Welcome to the Thinking Nutrition Podcast. My name is Tim Crow, and I'm a career researcher, educator, and science communicator with most of this spent in the field of nutrition. How do you make sense of so much conflicting information in the field of nutrition? While I don't profess to have all the answers in an area that is continually changing as research changes, you can count on what is covered in this podcast to be based on the whole field of nutrition science, not just selective areas that support a particular way of thinking. And this podcast will always be free from any commercial product tie-ins, endorsements, or advertisements. Just credible nutrition science presented in plain and simple language, and then translating this into what it means for your health. So, on with today's show. It doesn't take much searching on the internet to discover that soy is one of the most polarizing and contentious of foods. So, which side of this debate is actually right? Does soy deserve the health halo? Or should you swear off the stuff for life? When you take away the cherry-picked evidence, alarmist and emotive language, and the bro science, you're left with a food that rightly can be a feature of any person's diet. Soy is part of the legume family, and today is found in many foods. From the Japanese snack of edamame, which is the soybean in its natural state, through to soy milk and the variety of fermented foods, it can be enjoyed in many different ways. The nutrient composition of the soybean differs markedly from other legumes, as it is much higher in fat, moderately higher in protein, and much lower in carbohydrate. The soybean is notable not only for its total protein content, but the quality of the soy protein, which is higher than that of other plant proteins, and similar to animal protein. Soy foods can be divided into two groups, unfermented and fermented. Unfermented foods include soy milk, tofu, edamame, soy nuts, and sprouts. Then, There are the fermented foods, which include miso, natto, tempeh, and soy sauce. Add to this list what are called second-generation soy foods, popular in the West. These include tofu burgers and hot dogs, soy milk yogurts, and cheeses. Soy milk is one of the most popular soy products in Australia. It is a water extract of whole soybeans, where traditionally soybeans are soaked, heated, and then crushed to extract the milky juice, which is blended with water, vegetable oil, salt, and sweeteners like malted barley and sugar. Generally, it's low in calcium unless calcium is added to it, but it is rich in protein and B vitamins. Soy milk can also be made as a blend from soy protein isolate powder together with water, oil, 
sweeteners such as sugar or maltodextrin, along with gums, emulsifiers, vitamins, minerals, and calcium. Any mention of a vegetarian diet brings to mind tofu. Tofu was made in a process similar to cheese making using soy milk and a coagulant. It's available in a variety of textures and densities. Tofu can be an excellent source of calcium if calcium has been used in the setting agent. So what about the fermented foods? Well, here we have tempeh and natto, which are the simplest soy foods to make. This is where boiled soybeans are inoculated with the fungus Rhizopus oligosporus, which is used for tempeh, or the bacterium Bacillus subtilis, which is used for natto. And then the mix is left to ferment for a couple of days. Miso and soy sauce both involved inoculating boiled soybeans with the fungus Asparagillus oryzae for several days, and then mixed with brine and lactic acid bacteria for further fermentation. When the resulting paste is sufficiently ripe, it is blended and packaged as miso. Alternatively, the paste is pressed to separate solids from liquids, and the liquids are filtered and pasteurized into soy sauce. So that's your crash course in soy manufacturing processes. So the big question being tackled in today's podcast, is soy good for you? On the positive health side, you'll see many claims made about its benefits on heart health and even cancer risk, and along with a long list of other health benefits. These health benefits are attributed in large part to a class of compounds found in soy called isoflavones, many of which can act as phytoestrogens. Phytoestrogens are compounds that can weakly bind to estrogen receptors throughout the body. To start out broad, let's look at what a recent 2019 review exploring the association of soy and isoflavones with human health found. This was actually an umbrella review, which means it was a review of review studies. So it's all getting a little bit meta here. A total of 114 systematic reviews and meta-analyses covering 43 unique health outcomes were explored. And I'll link to this study in the show notes. So there is quite a bit to unpack from the review, but here is the summary. At the highest level of evidence rating, a beneficial link between soy consumption and cancer, cardiovascular disease, menopausal symptoms of hot flashes, bone health, cognitive function, and visual memory was seen. The only harm considered of concern was a link to a higher risk of gastric cancer in men who drank a lot of miso soup. On this review alone, you'd have to see that most of the health concerns you may read about soy are way off the mark, or like any context for its potential health benefits to offset them. You can pick any food you like and find research to show a negative impact on health. What matters is what the weight of evidence says about the health merits of the food when it comes to eating advice for the general population. So now let's drill down a bit further into some of the key areas for health and controversy when it comes to soy. So I'll start with heart disease first. There does appear to be some benefit of eating soy when it comes to having a healthy heart and cardiovascular system. 
a 2017 meta-analysis of 17 observational studies suggests that eating more soy foods was linked to a significantly lower risk of cardiovascular disease, stroke, and coronary heart disease. And I'll link to this study in the show notes. But the evidence is all really just from observational studies, research that has its own inherent flaws. When it comes to intervention research, soy protein supplementation does lower the more harmful LDL cholesterol and blood pressure. So this could translate into less heart disease. But the effects of soy here are quite modest. There are though no concerns that soy increases the risk of heart disease. So it could also be that the benefits of soy may also be from the dietary pattern eaten along with it. If soy foods are replacing some animal-based foods, this will decrease the amount of saturated fat eaten and up the fiber content of the diet, both of which can be a help for your heart. In other words, swapping out that bacon burger for tofu or tempeh is a heart-smart move, but having that burger followed by a bowl of soy ice cream for dessert probably won't be as helpful. Now, cancer is one area where soy features strongly, especially for breast cancer and prostate cancer, which have strong hormonal-related causes. This is where soy could be of benefit, and that is because of natural plant chemicals found in it called isoflavones. These isoflavones are phytoestrogens. Phytoestrogens can compete out the body's own natural estrogen for binding to the estrogen receptor. Estrogen binding to its cellular receptor is needed to exert its physiologic functions. Phytoestrogens can attach themselves to estrogen receptors and activate them instead, but because their estrogenic activity is much weaker than human estrogen, the effect is less. So that all means less cell stimulation by estrogen. And if you had to describe cancer in a single concept, it is simply cell growth and division that has gone out of control. Soy foods and phytoestrogens could all be a good thing when we talk about breast cancer risk. Much of a woman's risk of developing breast cancer can be linked to her lifetime exposure to estrogen. Having an early menarche, which is when a girl has her first period before the age of 12, going through a late menopause, not breastfeeding, having no children or having the first child over the age of 30 are all linked to a high risk of breast cancer. And this comes down to a longer reproductive lifetime exposure to estrogen as part of the normal reproductive cycle. Soy foods appear to increase the length of the menstrual cycle by about one day. This may not sound like a lot, but over a reproductive lifetime, this minor effect on menstrual cycle length could help to decrease breast cancer risk from less lifetime exposure to estrogen. From observational research looking at soy food consumption and isoflavone intakes and breast cancer risk, they do find a significant association with a lower risk of breast cancer by about a quarter in those that eat a lot of soy foods. Although a greater benefit is seen in women from Asian countries than in Western countries. So this could be partly related to the amount and diversity of soy foods eaten in Asian countries, as well as other lifestyle habits. 
there is some limited suggestive evidence that soy foods may lower the risk of prostate cancer, but it is not as strong as the link between soy and breast cancer risk. But mentioning this is a nice segue into my next topic, which is one for the guys, and it's all about testosterone. It is one of the most common negative things you'll hear about soy, and it is firmly driven by men. More specifically, men who are all about the gains in the gym. Because of the estrogen-like effects of the isoflavones in soy, then this food is treated by some men in a class below rat poison. But do men need to avoid soy if they want to keep their hard-won muscles? And is soy going to kill off every bit of their manliness as it slowly feminizes them in mind and body? The answer is no. A 2010 meta-analysis of 15 randomized controlled trials looking at soy or isoflavones and its effect on reproductive hormones in men found no effect on total testosterone, free testosterone, which is the active form of testosterone in the blood, or the transport protein for testosterone called sex hormone binding globulin. And I'll link to this study in the show notes. Guys, the next time someone tells you that you shouldn't drink soy milk or eat tofu because it's going to feminize you physically, just refer them to this meta-analysis. But that doesn't mean that soy has nil effect. If you eat enough of it, just like anything, it can have an effect. And so far, two case reports have been written up in the medical literature of men who went just a little too crazy for soy foods. In one case, a 60-year-old man who drank almost three litres of soy milk a day for months and months on end reported erectile dysfunction, reduced libido, and gynecomastia, which is swelling of the breast tissue in males. Yes, it's man boobs for real. The symptoms soon reversed when he stopped drinking the soy milk. While in another case, a 19-year-old vegan male who had a very soy-rich diet suffered from low levels of testosterone and erectile dysfunction. These were very rare cases and both cannot be linked exclusively to soy foods as anyone having that much soy will be eating a lot less of other foods in their diet too. So what about thyroid function? Well, when it comes to the thyroid, Soy sometimes comes up as being a food to avoid for anyone with a sluggish thyroid gland, a condition which is called hypothyroidism. Soy does contain chemicals that are called goitrogens. That is, they can interfere with thyroid hormone production by reducing the uptake and metabolism of iodine into the thyroid gland. Iodine is a key part of thyroid hormone after all. But a review of 14 studies in healthy adults and people with hypothyroidism found little to no effect of soy foods or isoflavone supplementation on a range of measures of thyroid function. And I'll link to this study in the show notes. But still, the authors did state that there does remain a theoretical concern based on cell culture and animal studies that in people with compromised thyroid function or low levels of iodine consumption, soy foods may increase the risk of developing clinical hypothyroidism. But just whether they should avoid soy foods altogether or just limit them is really unclear. But since this review came out, two long-term randomized controlled trials have been published 
both of which involve women taking isoflavone supplements. Neither study found any significant effect of the isoflavones on thyroid hormone concentrations, TSH levels, or thyroid antibody concentrations. So for anyone with thyroid problems, don't get your diet advice from what you read on the internet, especially if it is prefaced by alarmist claims about soy that have no basis in scientific fact. And finally, to round things out, I'll touch on the topic of whether soy-based formula is suitable and safe for infants. But to start with, it must be said that breast is always best for an infant. But in the case where this isn't possible and an infant formula is needed, especially if dairy or lactose intolerance is also an issue, then is a soy-based formula okay to use? The concerns about soy formulas come from its isoflavone content. An infant is going through rapid development stages that are sensitive to estrogen, but because of their small size, the use of an almost exclusive food source that is soy-based could expose them to higher levels of phytoestrogens than adults, whose food sources are more varied. What research there is in humans so far does not raise too many concerns, but the absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. The human studies so far indicate that soy-based formulas do not impair the growth of healthy, full-term infants. But in premature infants, the case may be different, where there has been a link made to it causing rickets, which is a bone disease caused by a deficiency in vitamin D. Turning to animal models, adverse effects have been seen, but it is unclear how much this can be applied to a different species, being humans. So in this case, it is not possible to give soy a completely clean bill of health for infants because of the lack of enough human research. That means some level of caution is warranted, and even though the risk is considered minimal, minimal is different to none or negligible. There is a good summary about the current state of research in this area put out by the United States government's National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences, and I'll link to this in the show notes so you can make your own assessment. So let's wrap up the soy story. Soy is a unique food that is widely studied for its estrogenic and anti-estrogenic effects on the body. And when you take away the cherry-picked evidence, alarmist and emotive language on the internet, and the bro science, you're left with a food that rightly is deserving of a place in any person's diet. Soy is a nutrient-dense source of protein that can safely be consumed several times a week and is likely to provide health benefits. And yes, while you can find some evidence of harm, you can do the same thing for any food you eat, and that would mean you would starve to death if you only ate food according to its health benefits and ignored food that had some potential for harm. What matters is the weight of evidence. And in the case of soy, it is tipped well in favor of a positive health benefit. So now onto my research wrap-up segment, where I profile a study that has grabbed my attention during the week. And this week, it's a big topic, diet and its role in cutting the risk of cancer. Many cases of cancer are considered preventable by simple nutrition and lifestyle changes. 
and a new study has estimated just how much seven different types of foods can influence cancer risk to a level to that seen for how alcohol, obesity, and physical inactivity can influence cancer risk. Diet is an important modifiable risk factor for changing a person's risk of developing cancer. Knowing just how much individual foods and diets can change cancer risk is an important exercise to do for determining evidence-based priorities for nutrition policies to cut the burden of cancer. A diet and cancer modeling study has just been published in the United States, which has relevance to many comparable Western countries, which have similar diets and cancer burdens. The research team looked at national dietary intake data and combined this with cancer incidence. They then tied all this together with the known associations between diet and cancer. And I'll link to the study in the show notes. Looking at seven key dietary factors, the total contribution to the cancer burden was 5% of all cases over a year. This number is on par for the cancer burden attributable to alcohol, which is 4 to 6%. Overweight and obesity have a slightly higher cancer burden of 7 to 8% of the cases of cancer, with physical inactivity coming in at 2 to 3% of cases. Low consumption of whole grain and dairy foods and high consumption of processed meats were the key diet contributors to cancer burden. Low consumption of fruits and vegetables and too much red meat and sugar-sweetened beverages were the other important diet factors. For specific types of cancer, it was colorectal cancer that stood out as being the one most influenced by poor diet, with 38% of cases linked to dietary factors. This was followed by cancer of the mouth, pharynx and larynx, where diet plays a role in 26% of all cases. It was middle-aged men and racial and ethnic minority groups that experienced the largest proportion of diet-associated cancers. Diet is one factor that is well within the control of a person to change when it comes to reducing the risk of cancer. Having plenty of whole grains, fruits and vegetables, together with dairy foods if a person chooses to have them, while cutting back on red meat and sugary drinks is where the greatest health wins are to be found. So that's it for today's show. You can find the show notes either in the app you're listening to this podcast on if it supports it or else head over to my webpage at thinkingnutrition.com.au and click on the podcast section to find this episode to read the show notes. If you find this podcast of value then please consider sharing it with your friends and colleagues or maybe even leave a review. This all helps increase the ranking and reach of the podcast which means a big win for credible evidence-based nutrition messages while helping to delude out the crazy and making the world a slightly less confusing place. I'm Tim Crow, you've been listening to Thinking Nutrition.